thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. On katetalk.co.za On the app On DSTV channel 885 And across the city on 567am Join the conversation This is Cape Talk This is Cape Talk a very special naked scientist today. We've had it in our mind in recent weeks to get the most inquisitive minds to ask Chris Smith, the naked scientist, their science and natural history related questions. We're hoping to do this as a, as a monthly thing. Maybe the final Friday of, of every month, getting a school to participate. First, let me introduce Melanie Francis. She's a teacher um, of Class 7 at Gaia Waldorf at Odemolen Eco Village. <laughs> Melanie, how are you doing this morning? Hi, good morning, Lester. I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Very good. I just want to do a quick introduction. Chris is already waiting to get those questions from the kids, but 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 are they okay. excited? How just what, what's everyone? How's everyone been at, at Gaia Waldorf? Yes, they're very excited. Everybody is very happy to be back at school. They um, COVID was has not been great for any of us. And learning online has not been great either. So it's wonderful to be back in the class to um, converse about all the topics, um, ask questions. There are lots of questions always coming through and... And it just makes a huge difference to be back in class here. I'm very happy to hear that. And um, Dr. Chris Smith, how are you doing today? I hope you're enjoying your Friday. Um, I'm really looking forward to this. And hello, Melanie. It's going to be fantastic to find out what, what you will want to know. I hope I can answer these questions. I suspect they're going to be really good ones. So here's one of the first questions that we have that's come through on a WhatsApp note from one of the kids from Gaia Waldorf. Let's have a listen. My name is Imad Dolby. And my question for you today is... When you pick a ball, will it immediately accelerate or decelerate? Right. When you first kick a ball, of course, what you're doing is turning your foot into a hammer. Now, that sounds a bit odd, but you've got a big weight, which is your foot, on the end of a really long handle, which is your leg. And the reason a hammer works is because as you swing a hammer, there's a lot of momentum in the head of the hammer, which is then imparted to the head of a nail to bang it into a piece of wood. It's the same when you use your foot as a hammer to hit a ball. You've, you swing your leg back, swing it forward to hit the ball, and there's an enormous amount of momentum now in your foot, which is imparted to the ball. So you will give the ball the energy that was in your foot, or at least a significant amount of it and this will accelerate the ball so as you kick the ball firstly because balls are spongy and elastic it will compress a bit because the ball will squeeze in and store some elastic energy your foot will also begin to push directly against the ball and then the ball will recoil elastically against your foot pushing on your foot as well and the combined effect of all of those things will lead to an acceleration of the ball so as it then leaves your foot and finally ceases to have contact with your foot the acceleration stops and at that point there's only deceleration because the ball is traveling through the air and air is imparting air resistance and air resistance will slow down the ball by robbing energy kinetic energy from the ball so the ball accelerates all the time your foot's in contact between the tip of your boot 
and the surface of the ball and as soon as it leaves contact with your foot it then begins to decelerate again. I think it's Nadima who's in class with some of the kids there. Who's coming? Who's who's asking the next so, question? So we've got one us. of our class seven children, Luke. He's going to ask the first question. Excellent. Morning, Luke. How are you doing? I'm doing good on you. Very good. Um, How old are you? I am 12 turning 30 in November. 12, of course, turning 13, 12 and off. Chris is listening. He'll answer your question. Okay. My question is, is there such a thing as a true circle? Hi, Luke. Uh, yeah, as far as we know, there is a true circle. We've got the value for pi. It's 22 over 7. And we know how to make a circle, which is that you put a point in the ground and the the definition of a circle is that the edge of the circle should be at the same distance from its centre all points. And if you pull your string out from the centre and put a pencil on the end of it and pull it round in a circle, that's how a compass works, then you will draw a perfect circle. And that is defined by the number 22 divided by 7. And this is 3.14159, etc., which is pi. But it's only a true circle if you were to go to the infinitesimally long number of decimal places or you use the number 22 over 7. I think NASA are happy with six decimal places. I think they use six, but it might be a few more. It might be nine. But I think NASA use, use six for their circles when they're doing their calculations. Thanks so much for that, Luke. 12 going on 13. Nathima, who's next? Okay, so next we've got Ethan. He's also in class seven. Good morning. Morning, Ethan. How are you doing? Good, and you? Very good. You, you have an interest in science and natural history? Well, I do have an interest in social studies and natural history and how the ages of before used to work, but I do have quite a great interest in science too. That's fascinating. Well, Chris is listening. Well, I have a question, which is, can a ray of light reflect or refract off a different ray of light? Right, okay. What you're getting at is, if I had, say, a laser beam, from a laser pointer, and so did you, and we shone them so they were on a collision course, would it be like two cars meeting at an intersection and going bang? Or would they pass straight through? Excellent question, Ethan. The answer is that light doesn't behave like cars colliding. Light does something else. It does what's called superposition. So if two light rays arrive at the same point at the same time, then they add together their amplitudes. In other words, if you've got one ray which is, I don't know, let's call it one, and another one's coming the other way, and it's also one, one and one adds up to make two. So you get a brighter spot where the two meet. And if they arrive in their so-called out of phase, so in other words, one wave is going up at the same time as the other one is going down, they'll add together, but they'll cancel out. So you get a dark spot. But then you're going to ask what happens after that. Well, actually, they then carry on. So you'll see the light ray does that, interacts, makes a brighter or darker spot and then carries on as it was on its original journey. So it doesn't actually know it's interacted with the other light ray in terms of it doesn't change its course or anything like that. So the light rays always travel in straight lines, but where they meet other light rays that are either in or out of phase with them, they superpose, add together temporarily. You see the product of that superposition and then they carry on. It is 20 minutes to 10 o'clock. You are listening to The Morning Review. It is The Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris Smith. A very special episode. We edition today. We are talking, we are chatting live 
to some of the kids at Gaia Waldorf at Odemolin Eco Village. We we want to do this a a regular thing. Get the kids involved. Contact some schools and maybe every last Friday of the month, you know, get a classroom on Zoom or on Skype with us, and they can talk directly to Dr. Chris Smith. Nadeva, who else do we have there today? So we've got Hadia. She's also in class seven. Hi. Hi, Hadia. How are you? I'm thinking you. Very good. Very good. Chris is listening. Um, I was just wondering, how does antimatter destroy matter? Hello, Hadia. The answer <laughs> to this. The, the answer to this very difficult, extremely advanced question is that matter comes in, or or stuff, material comes in two flavors: matter and antimatter. So it's a bit like having a mirror image. You've got the matter version and the antimatter version, and the two are mirror images of each other. And when they meet each other, they annihilate and they turn into energy. Now this sounds theoretical, but it's actually absolutely the reality and we use this in medicine all the time. We have various brain and and body imaging technologies for example where you re- where you actually use antimatter, antiparticles um as a way of imaging the body because of this interaction. Now why exactly they want to interact to produce energy it's because one thing is the direct mirror image of the other and when they merge they cancel each other out but you can't get rid of the energy that was within each so therefore there is a release of energy when they obliterate each other in that way the the question if you want to really baffle an astrophysicist or a cosmologist is to say everything we can see in the universe is made of matter where's all the antimatter gone then because our theories of how the universe should have formed in the big bang were that there should have been an equal amount of matter and antimatter made why it didn't therefore all annihilate with each other and just produce more energy we don't know and where all that antimatter has gone we don't know we know it can exist and we know it should exist we just know that all the stuff in the universe around us at the moment that we can see at least is made of matter oh thank you wow <laughs> Wow, I, I I wanted to know why the sky was blue or why the sky is blue at at, at that age. Oh, thankfully, really, an really easy question thing. for the first time. <laughs> uh, well, this is this is also a wonderful question, and the the answer, the simple answer, is the sky isn't blue. And you might say, well, what on earth do you mean, Chris? Well, if you look at the same sky, the same patch of sky at night, what colour are the stars? They're white. And if the sky was blue, then the light from those stars coming through that sky should also look blue, but it doesn't. So in other words, the blueness of the sky is an optical illusion during the day. Why? Well, when the light comes to us from the sun, what's coming from the sun is white light. White is not a colour that exists. White is what happens when all the different colours of the rainbow arrive at your eye at the same time, and we see white light. So in other words, light coming from the sun is a mixture of different colours or wavelengths of light. It just so happens that the blue light coming from the sun, the size of the waves is about the same size as the size of the bonds that connect the oxygen and nitrogen atoms in our atmosphere. So that means when the blue light sees our atmosphere, it gets scattered or bounced about like a bullet ricocheting around a room. And that means that when you look up at the sky, your eye sees lots of blue light coming towards you from all over the sky 
and the rest of the light coming through unaffected. So your brain, in order to make sense of that, says, well, if I've got blue light coming to me from all directions, the sky must be blue. So your brain tells you the sky is blue. It's not, it's just you've got blue light hitting you from all directions. And of course, at night time, when that effect goes away, you see the true colour of the sky, which is the atmosphere is colourless. Nadima, do we only have kids there from, from class seven? You have some younger, oh, so we've got some younger participants? Uh, no, we've got some younger ones from class six. So next up is um, Yakin. He's in class six with his question. Hi, Yakin. How are you? I'm good, and you? Very good. Fire away. Um, my question is, have you ever been visited by another civilization? Uh, civilization as in from outside the earth or a civilization from on earth from outside the earth yeah well we we don't know uh it's interesting this um because if you have the power to travel across the universe to visit another planet would you want to let the people who are there already know that you can do that you probably for various reasons wouldn't in the same way that when we go on safari we try to do minimal damage and we try to interact minimally with nature so we don't spoil things i think any civilization that's sufficiently advanced to have conquered the ability to travel across space and time would probably be aware of the consequences of interfering and they probably would take steps not to do that so they wouldn't let us know if they had come but it still it still makes for juicy hollywood movies and and good good yarns to tell at parties that uh, there are already people here from other civilizations but personally I, I don't believe that's possible okay so next we've got maya she's in class six as well hello, hello maya. how are you good and you very good you you enjoying school yeah excellent chris is listening um i would like to know if time travel will ever be possible Hi, Maya. Uh, time travel is indeed possible. We're all time travellers. We're going forwards in time at the rate at which the time ticks. That's the that's the, the crafty answer to your question. As one person said, um, we can travel in time, but we haven't found the reverse yet. So we can't go backwards, but we can go forwards. Now, Stephen Hawking famously said a few years back, uh, I don't believe time travel is possible because otherwise we would have been invaded by tourists from the future. In other words, people coming back from the future to, to improve the past. And he felt that there were too many paradoxes and the fact that we hadn't seen said time travellers probably ruled out their likely existence. I'm inclined to agree with him. I don't think it's possible to do time travel. But what we can do, on the other hand, is, is to see into the past a very long, long way. And this is how we know, for example, that the universe is getting bigger. It's how we understand how the universe has evolved and changed over time because we can use very powerful telescopes. We can see light that's travelled across the universe uninterrupted for billions of years and as it's done so the universe has changed its shape and that has deformed or distorted the light that's coming to us and so written into that light is a pattern of how the universe has changed and by analyzing that change you can work out how the universe is, has grown in the time it took that light to get to us and so we can we can see back into the past to some of the oldest stars that shone billions of years ago like 12 billion years ago uh, as it is at the moment, though, we're unable to, to to jump forward into the future or to go back physically to the past, but we can at least look what happened there. You are listening to a very special edition of The Morning Review, The Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith, answering the questions of the kids from Gaia Waldorf 
at uh, Oak, uh, Edemolin uh, Eco Village. We're looking to do this every month. So if you want to pitch your school, you can then let us know. Drop us a WhatsApp, 0725671567, and we can start building that list of kids, bringing kids onto the show to ask Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, these science-related questions. Nadima, who's up next? The next is Zafra. Hi. Hi, Zafra. Um, thanks for all the answers so far. Uh, my question is, what does the effect of pH in the water have on the radish seed germination? Well, the answer is that um, the seeds of, of anything will germinate under ideal conditions. And the ideal conditions are a pH which is not too acid and not too alkaline because if if you make the pH excessive, that's not good for the stuff that the seeds are made of or the stuff that they need to make. The best conditions are going to be a pH probably about 7 or thereabouts. So the answer is if you made it too acidic, they wouldn't germinate. And if you made it too alkaline, they wouldn't germinate. It has to be like Goldilocks's porridge. It's got to be just right. And the seeds for any plant, if anyone ever asks you this question, the answer is they will they will grow best and they will germinate best at the pH at which they have evolved to, to grow. <laughs> so in other words, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Some plants do tolerate very acidic conditions. And for instance, plants that grow on peat bogs, where there's waterlogged soil, there's low oxygen, it's it's lower pH, other plants will grow very well on heavily alkaline, very chalky soils, you know, around sort of northern parts of South Africa and Joburg, for example. You will get very chalky soils there. The pH is quite high. Plants that grow there are well adapted to those conditions. So it's really where that, that plant naturally grows. You will find those sorts of conditions are ideal for it to, to germinate. And any departure away from that ideal will mean it won't necessarily stop it, but it might not grow as well or germinate as quickly and as efficiently as if the conditions were optimal. Chris, we're going to go to some of the voice notes now that's, that the kids have sent in. A truck filled with birds sitting on its floor be heavier than a truck with the same birds flying around inside. Wow. Yeah, this is a classic one. Well, let's think about the birds flapping their wings. Newton, about 350 years ago, came up with three laws. And one of those laws is that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So the way a bird is flying is that the wings of the bird are pushing air downwards. And if you push air downwards, then the air pushes up on you. But the air is still moving downwards. And the air can't not move downwards, so the air will then hit other things which either stop it going downwards or they're accelerated downwards as well. So in other words, the force down is transmitted onto the container. So when the birds all fly up in the air, they're pushing down on the container indirectly through the air. So even though they're flying, the truck is still effectively supporting them, whereas if they're all sitting on the ground, then obviously gravity is accelerating them downwards at the same rate uh, that they would have to oppose if they were flying. So actually there would be no net change in, in the mass of the truck. These are some really serious questions that are being asked, Chris. It's so far I'm, I'm, st- I'm getting. I'm going to have to put in a bigger bill for this week because this is <laughs> this is giving me a run for my money. Let's have another go, Nadima. Let's go back to Gaia Waldorf at Odemolen. Who's next? So now we're moving down to class five. We've got Wendell. Hello there. Hello, Mr. Wendell. How are you? Good and you? Excellent. Chris is listening. Okay. So my question is. 
what is at the bottom of a black hole? <laughs> uh, as they get younger, the question's getting harder. <laughs> okay, what's a black hole? Well, a black hole and was a theoretical thing until we actually managed to see photographs of one taken a couple of years ago. You might remember these amazing media stories across the world where researchers published the first images of what we call the event horizon of a black hole. And the event horizon is the point at which light can no longer escape from this entity, so it looks black. These are areas of space which are incredibly massive, as in they've got enormous amounts of material in them, this gives them a massive amount of gravity because gravity is proportional to how massive you are. And that has the effect of deforming the fabric of space. We tend to think of space not as just an empty vacuum, but as this mysterious thing that Einstein called space-time. It's literally like a fabric, a sheet. And a simple analogy is to think of a trampoline and think of something like a big heavy ball being put in the middle of the trampoline. It would bend down the middle of the trampoline. Massive objects like stars and planets bend the trampoline of space to make a dip. And this has the effect of making a dip if you've got lots of mass and you're a black hole that's so deep and so steep that not even light can get out of it. But if you went in there then you would be experiencing extremes of gravitational acceleration. You would undergo a process called spaghettification, where you would stretch out and become incredibly long, and at the same time everything would be pulled together uh, as you went deeper and deeper in until you were squished down to the component parts of the atoms that make you up. And then beyond that to something called a singularity. No one's ever been there. We can't see in there, so we don't actually know what that would look like, but I don't think it would be a very nice experience to go in there. Rahima, who's up next? So, so we've got Maya, and she's got a, quite a unique question, I think. My question is, uh, why is everybody's poo brown? Because <laughs> we all eat different stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Actually, I really like this question. And the answer to that is because of a chemical that's made in your intestines called stercobilin. Where does stercobilin come from? Well, actually, the story starts with the red blood cells that are carrying oxygen around your blood. Red blood cells are red because they've got this stuff in them called haemoglobin. Haemoglobin has got iron in it, the metal iron. And when you are done with your haemoglobin and the red cells that carry it have got old, they get destroyed and broken down. And the haemoglobin gets recycled in the body, but it's not immediately recycled. It's in fact, first of all, broken up into something which is called urobilindogen, and urobilinogen gets chucked out of your liver in bile that you secrete to help you absorb fats into your intestines. And as it goes down the intestines, it gets oxidised and acted on by bacteria that eat it and they turn it into stercobilin. And stercobilin is brown. So you end up doing, as the Scottish person who taught me biochemistry at medical school, it's why you do brown jobbies. But... You don't always do brown poos if you have a problem with your liver. So people who have a liver problem that stops them making the urobilinogen in the first place, the, the, in fact, it's, it's a slightly different chemical than that that goes into the intestine, but the, the precursor to that, if the liver doesn't work properly, then, in fact, you don't make any of the material that turns into stercobilin. 
and you do very pale poos that look like chalk. And so we ask patients, have you noticed anything like that happening to you? Because if they do say, I've gone a bit brown and yellow, and my eyes have gone yellow, and my poos have gone pale, like chalk, then you know there's something wrong with their liver. I'm the 37-year-old with, with a toilet-related question here, Chris. Why is it that, that some, some foods you, you see, if I eat, were to eat, uh, drink a, a beetroot smoothie, it would come out with a reddish tinge? Ah. Or if I were to have uh, lots and lots of spinach, it would tend to be greenish. Yeah. Well, the intestines are good, but they're not perfect and there are some things that we eat that we can't break down with our own digestive juices and we rely on the microorganisms that live in our large bowel to finish the job off for us and there are some chemicals and some coloured chemicals in the foods that we eat that can't be broken down very efficiently by either. There is a condition called beet urea because the uh, beet, when you, when you eat beetroot, the anthocyanins, which are the red chemicals in there, come into the bloodstream and they're water-soluble. But they're normally broken down on their way through the bloodstream. And so when you pee out the breakdown products, because they're dissolved in water, they come out through your kidneys, they're colourless. But in some people, they have a particular change to a particular gene that's involved in the bit of your metabolism that breaks down those coloured chemicals and you can't break them down. And the result is that you actually pee out and poo out red stuff and some people get very alarmed and they think they're pooing or weeing blood. They're not. So the first question, if a young, otherwise healthy person comes to you and said, I've suddenly dramatically started to poo and pee blood, you say, hang on a minute, did you eat beetroot yesterday? And if they say, oh, yes, I love it, then you say, now we know nothing wrong with you. You've got beet urea. And unfortunately, that's all we have time for. Chris, how did you find this? Uh, very hard. Very hard. Um, I'm going to have to go and cool off and have a cold shower now and read more books. Nadeva and the kids at Gaia Waldorf, thank you so much. All the best from us. Thanks for being our first guinea pig here on the show. We hope to do this regularly. You're on the morning review. Thanks so much, guys. Bye. Thank you. Cheers, Chris. See ya. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.